Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus podcast, the Macro Matters edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. With me today, we go across the pond to Ian Shepardson. He is the chief economist for Pantheon Macro. Ian, thanks for coming back on uh, on our podcast. Ira, thank you very much for having me back. So you put out a really interesting piece uh, yesterday on the 17th of November, talking about the Federal Reserve and your expectations uh, for the Fed, and and maybe pushing back a little bit against some of the uh, some of the folks who are thinking that the Fed might go really early, like in the first quarter of uh, of 2022. Talk to us a little bit about the factors that. Um, that, that you know you're, you're looking at for the Fed and your expectations for, um, for for when the Fed might start to hike monetary policy. Sure. So uh, for a long time, I've been thinking that they would start moving in September next year, uh, and then maybe one more move before the end of the year. And so I've been kind of perturbed to see markets rushing into this June story, or maybe even the first quarter rate hike story. And I kind of look at the data and I think, well, it's very difficult to see how the Fed could hit all three of its criteria to raise rates before the middle of the year. So inflation needs to be at 2%, and it needs to be expected to moderately exceed 2% for some time. Uh, But most importantly, in this context, the Fed also wants to be at maximum employment before they raise rates. Now, maximum employment has not been specifically defined. If you define it very narrowly and say it's just the headline unemployment rate, then maybe they could be there by the spring. But that is a very, very low bar and, and, and the wrong metric to use if you're thinking about full employment because it's affected by the participation rate. Uh, and we know participation has been doing some really weird things. If you look instead at broader measures, which I think makes much more sense, employment to population ratios, either the headline level or among the prime age population, it's going to be well beyond the spring before we get back to previous peaks. And so to hit that maximum employment level, and and I think probably those measures are more relevant to the Fed, uh, especially to Chair Powell, who's made a great deal about about getting employment back to where it was pre-COVID, then uh, looking at those measures, I I think to go earlier would would be really very aggressive. And I just don't detect any sign from Chair Powell in his public comments that he's sort of wobbling in the way that some people in markets maybe maybe think he ought to be. The the catch here is that the inflation numbers in the next few months are going to be horrible. And we saw a big reaction in the media and the commentariat after the October numbers. And unfortunately, I think November could be even worse. And December and January are going to be pretty awful as well. Then things turn much better next spring because the base effects are very favorable. But between now and then, things are going to get difficult, more difficult for the Fed. And the pressure on Chair Powell and his colleagues is going to increase. But I think most likely, not certain, but most likely, I think they hold the line. I think they say that monetary policy can do nothing about inflation over the next few months. The lags are long and variable. Uh, and that um, there are still strong grounds for believing that by the end of next year, a lot of the transitory forces will have dropped out. And touch wood, that means it's safe not to go rushing into a premature tightening. But it's going to be a close run thing. Uh, I can't promise that that, uh, Mr. Powell won't fold. But he sounds to me like a guy who's pretty determined to do as much as he possibly can to run the economy hot. And he's going to take a lot of persuading, a lot of persuading to move rates earlier than, uh, than the middle of next year. 
And, and of course, we're also assuming that Chair Powell is going to be reappointed by President Biden, um, you know, in, in, uh, and and going to be even on the committee after January of, of 2022 as well. Um, yes, indeed. Yes. Well, yeah, so, in, in this specific interest rate context, I think Chair Powell or Chair Brainerd doesn't make much difference. If we were talking about bank regulation, it would be a different conversation. But I think on interest rates, I don't see much between them. Yeah, I agree. I, agree with with that assessment as well and if if anything uh, if anything the committee is going to be more dovish not less dovish probably with whomever um the president appoints because we'll we'll have uh potentially three new members of the board of governors and then um the uh the the new president that would come in say if if mr bostic became uh a governor uh whoever came into the atlanta fed probably wouldn't be significantly more hawkish than than he he is so um so, so in, in on aggregate you're likely to have a more dovish fed in 2022 than we were expecting if there was a status quo um just looking at at all the voting members uh for next year um but you know interestingly the, the hawks what case might the hawks continue to make. So we had, you know, uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve President uh, Jim Bullard, who is has turned very hawkish, although he tends to occasionally uh, change his views quite dramatically. Uh, <laughs> yes, but, he does. But, <laughs> but, but lately he's been reasonably hawkish and, and noted that he he thought that they would hike a couple of times next year. But but even he was saying that that he's one of the, the members of the FOMC that were, was saying that they could taper faster because of the inflationary environment. Um, you know, I, I agree that that he's not likely to become the majority. But, you know, what, what other cases might the the Hawks make on the committee to try and convince the other members to kind of speed things up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a respectable intellectual case to be made uh, to be more aggressive and to be more concerned about inflation. And it's pretty straightforward. It's simply the idea that the longer is the period where you print numbers that were higher than you expected and recently a lot higher than you expected, uh, then the bigger is the danger that expectations increase out of control and those expectations feed back into wage setting behavior. And that wage setting behavior then embeds the overshoot into future inflation uh, and changes it from transitory to something permanent or, or converts a spike into a spiral, however what you want to describe it. But essentially, rising expectations becomes a mechanism to make things go wrong in the medium term. And if that's the risk, then then it's a respectable thing to do to take action to prevent that happening. Of course, we don't really have any modern day experience of how uh, inflation expectations genuinely respond to a, a short term spike. I mean, the last meaningful, sustained uplift in U.S. inflation began way back in the 1960s, in the middle of the 60s. It was pretty well embedded by the time of the oil shock in 1973. Uh, and, and But at that time, the numbers were so much higher and, and, and the economy was very different and people's expectations had a long time to adjust to rising inflation before the big hit. And so it was a different planet. And I'm very, very reluctant to try and use that experience as any sort of guide to today. Fact is that now we've been in a disinflationary environment for, well, nearly 40 years. I think a lot of the structural forces that caused that are still around, maybe not so strong, but they're still around. And uh, as the COVID shocks dissipate, especially uh, the supply shocks, which have caused such chaos in the auto market in particular, then I don't think inflation expectations are going to rise in a big sustained way. Um, and I'm not at all convinced yet that the case for a permanent acceleration in wage growth, um, which would be very damaging, uh, is really very strong, which is not to say that it's going to stay that way. I mean, there's, there's clearly some real uncertainty over the state of the labor market. I think it's it's really important for the dubs 
that Labour participation rises over the next few months because all the forces we've been talking about holding participation down, like the extended benefits and schools and childcare being closed and the COVID Delta wave, you know, those things are are dissipating or in some cases completely finished now. So we really do need to see some evidence that the labour market is is fixing itself. Um, and, uh, you know, I, again, if I were a hawk, I'd be pushing that line that, that at the moment the labour market looks absurdly tight. So the danger of higher expectations passing into wage growth is real. Um, and and if, if I were a dove, I would say, OK, uh, there's nothing, nothing there is, is wrong. And, and so there is an element of judgment call. But I do think that the dove's judgment at the moment is still leaning towards the idea that participation will rise, that wage pressure will diminish, and that stronger capital spending, which we haven't mentioned, but it's the strongest thing in the economy right now, stronger capital spending boosts productivity growth, helps to hold down unit labor costs, and uh, transitory becomes the story of the day. But so, so, so Ian, let, let, let's talk about then, then things like inflation, and obviously we're focused you know, quite strongly on inflation because it is the kind of story du jour. But uh, you have the in, inflation swaps market um, implied forwards are, are suggesting that there's going to be 3% CPI growth um, in, in basically 2022 and 2023. Do, do you think that maybe that's pricing a little bit too high, or, or is it realistic that we could see probabilistically, you know, a either a three and a half or two and a half percent, uh, um, yeah. 50, 50 odds of each in, in say 2023, because I think in, in a way that will inform, um, you know, if, if the federal reserve does hike once or twice next year, um, then that'll inform the pace that they go in 2023, presumably, or at least if, if those expectations are, seem to be realized uh, either on that upside or downside. Yeah, so so this is a really important point because I think these expectations are putting far too much emphasis on the recent data and not thinking about what the fundamental forces will look like going into 2023. So, you know, in particular, I'm pretty convinced that we're going to see a huge drop in in vehicle prices which have gone completely crazy. Uh, both for new and used cars, entirely because of the chip shortage. The chip shortage is now fixing itself. So having been a big positive contribution to inflation and and will continue to be for the next few months, it, this time next year, we could be looking at uh, vehicle prices in free fall. And that's 10% of the core CPI. Uh, and, you know, some of the other things which are going to rebound in the next few months, like, like, ho- like hotel room rates and airline fares, you know, they're not going to keep going up permanently. And so I think the case for mean reversion is quite strong if you believe the labor market normalization story, which I very much do. And if you believe the stronger capex, stronger productivity story, which I very much do, then there's probably not very much to worry about in 2023. And extrapolating uh, what's happened over the last few months that far out, to me, uh, is, uh, is is quite aggressive, which is not to say it's definitely going to be wrong. I mean, I do think this is a 60-40 story where 60% chance of inflation returning to 2 to 2.5 in 2023, which does mean there's a 40% chance that it doesn't. So I'm not suggesting this is a clear-cut case. I think pretty much every direction I look in now, the outlook is foggy and uncertain. And uh, I think you're banging the table and saying it's definitely going to be X or it's definitely going to be Y is uh, is is very risky. Uh, but you know, I do think that that markets maybe are putting just a little bit too much emphasis on what's happened recently and extrapolating without really considering the underlying forces, which you know I, I think are likely to be much more favourable a year from now, and maybe even a bit less than that. So, talking about things like productivity, you mentioned that capital spending is going up, and and so so you know one of the 
one of the oddities of the contribution, and, and we actually at, at Bloomberg Intelligence just put out a, a piece this morning looking at some of the contributions to um, to CPI over time. And what, what's been very unusual about the, the recent bout of inflation is just how large the contribution is from the goods sector vis-a-vis -vis the services sector. Um, so if, if productivity is rising, then presumably wages probably aren't, aren't rising very quickly, which is obviously the largest input to services. So as we get this, uh, you know, potential rollover because of the supply chain, you know, kind of easing and, and some of the issues easing, presumably goods prices, goods price inflation will slow significantly. Um, you know, what, what's what's your, your read on where wages and the services sector inflation might go? Um, you know, that's uh, go, going to, in order to get a sustained bout of inflation, presumably that's really where we need to see uh, a lot of the a lot of the inflation. And and if if wages aren't going to grow, then you probably won't have that inflation. And that two to two and a half percent you just mentioned is is likely. But if you do get this wage impulse uh, in the services sector, then then that's where um, that that's where inflation will probably come from, at least in my view. Um, so, yes, so you know, what, yes, what's your view that, on that? That's that's dead right. I mean, you know, the core CPI, as I always say, is basically a services price index with a few goods in it to keep it amusing. Um, the biggest service in there is is rent housing costs, which is 39% of the core CPI. It's 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 less than the PCE, but it, you know it's it's a big chunk. Um, it's very very sensitive to wages uh, and sensitive to home prices as well. And so both of those things have been pushing up rent inflation, likely to drive it significantly higher over the course of the next year. But I don't think they keep rising indefinitely. We're seeing some inventory pickup in the housing market, so I think home price inflation will moderate. But wage inflation is really the, the, the big one. Uh, wage inflation adjusted for productivity growth with unit labor costs. That's really what counts. Now, the very latest data we've got here is terrifying. In, in the third quarter, private sector wages in the, in the employment cost index rose at a six and a half annualized rate, which is uh, off the charts compared to the previous few cycles. But it's also, I think, very clearly a product of unusual circumstances. We have quite strong labor demand as the economy is reopened, and we've still got uh, reduced supply because of people's reluctance for a variety of reasons to come back into the labor force. But you can't live on a few stimulus checks forever. Uh, and uh, you know the U.S. is a very difficult place to be voluntarily unemployed. You can end up with no cash, and that's not very comfortable. So I do think that some of the people who are holding out returning to the labor force may be because they've been living on their stimulus payments or their enhanced benefits for a while and, and are now thinking, well, you know, maybe I need to get a job because uh, the, the money will run out in due course. And there's 10.5 million jobs available officially. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's it's it, at all difficult to imagine that this crazy supply demand imbalance in the labor market will right itself and possibly right itself really pretty quickly. So in those conditions, then we'll see a big rise in the participation rate over the next few months and wage growth inevitably will slow down to something uh, more sustainable, probably faster than it was in the last cycle where it was very weak, you know, only about three percent of the peak. But even if, if it settles down, let's say, to four and a half or five, which, again, would be very high by recent cyclical standards, as long as productivity growth gets up to two, two and a quarter, back to the long run average, which I think is, again, also very reasonable, then the Fed doesn't have very much to worry about. Uh, and, th you know, this is my base case. I very much appreciate it could go wrong in either direction. But I don't think it's asking a huge amount for wage growth to moderate a bit and for productivity growth just to mean revert to where it was before COVID, which is about 2%. So I'm not expecting anything crazy, but what I am expecting is enough to take the heat out of the core inflation numbers once all the short-term bottlenecks are gone as well, which is definitely going to happen. Uh, and, and you put that together, then net-net a year from now, we're looking back and saying, hey, you know, what was all that inflation fuss about? 
And if you've hiked rates in the meantime, then you've probably done something that you didn't need to do. So, so in, in, in that case, then may, maybe you're you're suggesting that the market pricing for a terminal rate closer to one and a half percent for the Fed funds rate might be might be more accurate than than those of us like you know myself included who think we're going to have something closer to two percent or two and a quarter percent as as a potential terminal rate or um just because if if you're right and you do get that kind of slowing in the economy in 2022 then maybe they're not going to hike more than two or three times in you know after two 2022 hikes well this is where things get get potentially interesting and potentially complicated because if the reason that the fed doesn't have to chase inflation is that productivity growth has picked up. And so it holds down unit labor costs, holds down inflation. We all big a, breathe a big sigh of relief. The catch is that sustained pickup in productivity growth eventually will feed into the Fed's estimate of R star, the neutral interest rate, which will go up. So we may well see in 2022, 23, 24, the Fed raising rates, but not because it's chasing inflation, having you know, lost control of it, but gradually normalizing rates because the neutral rate is rising on the back of stronger productivity growth. Now, this is the dirty little secret of every central bank in the world is that, is that this is what they want. They want to be able to raise interest rates because the economy is normalizing, productivity growth is normalizing, um, because they want to be able in the next downturn, whenever that is, 26, 27, uh, they want to be able to deal with it by cutting rates instead of just printing money straight away. Uh, but the catch is that they will have to sell to the markets the idea that, yeah, you know, we were right about inflation. It was transitory, aren't we heroes? But we still got to raise rates because the neutral rate is rising, having fallen for most of the previous 20 years, which uh, we, you know was under a lot of pressure from slowing productivity growth and demographics. If that uh, if some of that story turns around, then sooner or later, the Fed will have to put its hand up and say, hey, you know, the neutral rate is going up and we have to respond to that now. That, to me, is a much, much less scary prospect for markets than the Fed having to say, sorry, we got inflation wrong, and now we have to chase it. But it is going to require some degree of finessing from the Fed uh, if eventually they're going to go down this route. But to be honest, I think that's a, a really quite a nice problem to have, because who wouldn't in a central bank want to be looking at an economy where trend growth is rising, productivity growth is picking up, you can, you know, potentially you can escape from the from the zero lower bound, and suddenly everything looks recognizably normal again. It's kind of the holy grail, but it's not free. Fair enough. That was Ian Shepherdson of Pantheon Macro. Ian, thanks for coming back on the Thick Focus podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. And now we're going to go to the Great White North. We're bringing in Angelo Monolatos, who's usually here to do fun-fed facts, but today he's going to put on his Canadian rates hat because Angelo has picked up coverage of the Canadian rates market. Angelo, thanks very much for coming back on the Fit Focus podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about 2022. Obviously, we've seen inflation rising pretty much globally. Um, just this morning, um, as uh, as we've been recording, there's a uh, uh, been the CPI report out of Canada. You know, talk a little bit about where you see Canadian rates ending next year, um, and uh, and some of the drivers of those uh, potential moves. Um, so for 2022, we think there's going to be you know, more sell-off in uh, Canadian rates and uh, we anticipate flatter curves as well. So we see a bulk of that move happening uh, two to five years. And we actually do, uh, we actually have changed our call for 10-year uh, yields in Canada. We think that the 10-year yield is going to break 2%. Um, it's currently in the, uh, around 175 right now. So 
but we do think it's going to break 2% and we do anticipate a, uh, a rate cycle happening in Canada and that occurring uh, the first uh, liftoff occurring before uh, the Federal Reserve lifting rates in the United States. So, so where is Canada in kind of the re- recovery mode in general? You know, do, do you think, you know, obviously, if the Bank of Canada is going to be increasing interest rates first, then, then clearly they're a little bit in front of the U.S., but but what's been different and or faster in Canada vis-a-vis the United States uh, in terms of the recovery? Yeah, so a similar story uh, as the United States insofar as inflation being high, um, Inflation, both goods and services, taking higher. However, it's not as high year over year as it is in the United States. Um, however, what is uh, more improved is the uh, labor market. The jobs gap uh, to February 2020 has completely closed. If you look at um, the trend growth or, or the unemployment rate or employment rate, you still it still implies a bit of job slack, which you know, could give. Bank of Canada a little bit of wiggle room to to continue being a little bit um, more dovish among really high um, really high inflation prints, although they only have a single mandate. So yeah, it's really uh, the difference between the U.S. and Can- the one major difference between the U.S. and Canada right now um, is the labor market and the fact that yeah the jobs gap has closed and that is um, something that we have not yet seen in the in the United States with millions of uh, jobs. Uh, uh, lost uh, since the pandemic, and and what was there anything interesting out of the uh, October um, CPI report? You know, was were, were there any signs that inflation is going to keep on rising in in uh, in Canada? Like you know, certainly in the U.S., just because of some base effects and and other things, we'll probably see you know a somewhat higher prints for November and December, and then maybe you know things will start to stabilize in the U.S. But you know, what are the dynamics for inflation in Canada right now? Yeah, so uh, looking at the, the latest numbers, like so, we had a higher um, higher year-over-year print, and that was also driven by higher year-over-year numbers in both goods and services. So that points a little bit more to the stickiness uh, of these inflation readings. However, if you strip out energy, we actually had a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a decline. So from 3.3 percent to so nothing major, but not accelerating um, and not accelerating or going higher. We did see a large uh, shelter print. However, if you look at break it down into the components, it's really those um, it's it's really the uh, utility components that uh, had risen um, in in that uh, at a at more than the what was the uh, seasonally adjusted month over month move in shelter which also uh, points a little bit more to some optimism. But like you said earlier, yeah, we, we anticipate um, perhaps higher uh, prints going through until January. So the Bank of Canada, like most central banks around the world, have been doing a quantitative easing program, which is not something that they did after the global financial crisis um, or during the global financial crisis, for that matter. Um, you know, what's you know, I know that they've stopped uh, doing net increases to their um, to their portfolio at this point. So what are the chances that in 2022 we'll start to see them start to run off their uh, their portfolio early or or right around the time that they start to hike? Or do you think that they delay that runoff uh into the future, yeah. So I think I think they were pretty. I think they, the campaign Canada was pretty uh, transparent in their taper and then uh, eventual uh, reinvestment phase. They are actually pre the initial uh, 
the initial taper, which actually reduced the amount of accommodation, was preceded by a, a nice speech by one of the governors. And then Governor Macklem had a speech about the reinvestment phase right before they got into the reinvestment phase. Right now, what we know is that the Bank of Canada is going to continue keeping the size of its portfolio the same, at least until up to the first hike. Uh, after that, uh, there's a, a couple approaches they can take for how they how they run off their portfolio, um, be it uh, run off like the Fed did or a more aggressive approach uh, like the Bank of England has proposed in actively selling bonds. We favor uh, a, a just passive balance sheet runoff with some sort with a with a cap, uh, a monthly cap. I think that's uh, better for market function and liquidity. And if we remember these asset purchases in the government bond purchase program and the, the purchase program that we had in, domestically in the United States, those were meant to address market functions. So I think market function is going to be key in how the Bank of Canada, the U.S. and uh, are going to really uh, go ahead with um, quantitative tightening or how they think about their balance sheet going forward. And how much of the of the Bank of Canada portfolio is uh, in the in the front end? Had most of, most of their purchases been you know long dated, and, or has it you know has it been throughout the curve, more similar to the U.S. or you know has it been a little bit more in in the front end? So so what what could that pace of runoff be once they start to allow the portfolio to run down? Yeah. So the majority of so fi- more than fifty percent of GOCs outstanding actually mature by. Uh, like the fall of 2025. And of those, the Bank of Canada owns around around 50%, maybe 48%. So runoff uh, will will slim their portfolio down. But that, and that begs the question, well, will, will they own too much of the float of longer dated bonds? Because uh, runoff uh, is only on, well, what's, what's maturing as, as, it's, as it's maturing. Uh, and uh, we believe that the the bank of Canada offering, you know, offering their securities on repo uh, is a is a good way for the you know the market participants who need to source these securities in the market either to short or uh, to get them to an end user um, can can do that uh, effectively through the Bank of Canada's repos. Great, Angelo. Anything else about the Great White North? That's all for today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you very much, Angelo. On behalf of Ian Shepherdson, Angelo Monolatos, I've been Ira Jersey. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Macro Matters edition of the FIC Focus podcast. Until next time, be well. Yeah.